reading of the scripture. I'm going to read two verses from the book of Hosea. The first one is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. And as Justin goes up here, I've been looking forward to this sermon all week. We had breakfast with Justin on Thursday, and we started talking about the message. And so uh, I'm glad I can be in here today. So um, the first, Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. I'm going to read these two verses, and I'm going to pray um, before Justin shares the word with us. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. The second verse is in Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Let's pray. Lord, we pray this morning, you said it's time to break up the fallow ground. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would break up the soil of our hearts. Lord, that that you would remove every distraction from our minds, that you would take those away, that we would hear this morning the word that Justin, um, that you've put on his heart to share with us. So Lord, um, speak to us this morning. Make us servants who follow you with all of our hearts. And as Justin shares and preaches from your word, Lord, just empower him with your spirit. Give him words, the words to say. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to do something a bit unusual this morning. I'm going to uh, call us to apply the sermon before we even hear it. Um, and so we're going to be talking about God's kindness today. So if you will, just join me in one more time of prayer. We have Nick and Brittany Harp with us this morning. And so we want to pray for God's kindness over Mila and continue to pray for a miracle. And so if you guys will join me for just a few minutes of prayer as we pray for God's kindness over that sweet girl. Father God, you're a God who loves mercy. You are a tender-hearted, loving God. God, as big as you are and as great as you are in the fact that you created galaxies, you created the far reaches of the universe, Father. You hold the oceans in the palm of your hands. And yet, Father, you still hear the breathing of Myla Harp, as tiny and as small as she is. Father, you hear her heartbeat. You are the one that gives her life to breathe. You are the one that keeps her heart beating. And Father, so we, we just ask right now over on behalf of the family that you will pour out your kindness on them and give them the desire of their heart, Father, that you will raise Myla to walk, that you will give her words in her mouth and thoughts in her mind and beautiful sights in her eyes, Father, that she will laugh again and play again. And God, we continue to ask for a miracle. We know you can, and we know that you're kind too. And so, Father, we lift it up to you and ask you, Lord, to uh, allow us to experience your love in a real way. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. God is not stationary. He moves. Have you ever thought about that? God is not a God who sits still. God is a God who actually moves. Now, as incredible and as amazing as that is in and of itself, it is not just the fact that God moves that is amazing. It is also in thinking about to whom God moves that is amazing. Who does God move toward? 
The story of the Bible tells the story of how God moves to the ruined and broken humanity. He is moved but to compassion as he sees the weak and the wounded, as he sees the hurting and the helpless. He sees suffering. He hears cries. He knows the afflictions of the oppressed. As an example of this, we can go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. And God tells Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. And then in a beautiful statement, I know their sufferings. What then? Okay, God, so you see, you hear, you know. What then? God moves. And I have come down to deliver them. This was the kindness of God toward his people. This is also the kindness that God expects us as his people to show. He expected them to move in compassion towards others, just as he moved in compassion toward his people. He gave them the law, which in the words of Micah 6, 8, demands for justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with God. Now, if you're here with us last week, We dealt with justice and how the law requires justice. And we're going to turn now to think about how God's law requires his people to show kindness, to love kindness. We're going to accomplish four things this morning. Number one, we will look at how the Bible describes kindness. Number two, we will see how the laws in Exodus chapter 20 to 23 demand that God's people show kindness. Number three, we will consider how Jesus has fulfilled the law's command. And then finally, we will briefly consider how Jesus has called his church to do the same. Now, by the end, this is the one undeniable truth that we will see from the law and kindness. God moves toward the weak and wounded, and so should we. Very simple. There's one thing I want you to walk out with today. Out of all the laws that we're going to walk through, out of all the gospel that we're going to talk about, it's simply this. We're going to put flesh on bone. God has moved to the, toward the weak and wounded, and so should his church. Now, if you do a word study on on the Hebrew word for kindness, your study is going to take you all over the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for kindness, and I and I told myself I wasn't going to do it, but I like to show off my Hebrew skills. Hebrew word for kindness, chesed, right? You got to. It's not chesed. You got a hakalugi at the beginning when you say it. Chesed, right? It can be translated in many different ways. You see it all through the Old Testament with words like mercy. Favor, loving kindness, steadfast love, loyal love, faithfulness, and even goodness. The Bible speaks of God's kindness and of his people's kindness as something that is absolutely essential for a life that is pleasing before God. You cannot live a life pleasing to God and not be kind. It's simply required. For example, when we look at Micah 6, 8. He says it's impossible to do good without kindness. Micah seven eighteen follows by saying that God delights in steadfast love, in that chesed, right? Hakdalugi. It's the same word over and over again. Hosea six six says that God desires steadfast love. God desires mercy. God desires kindness and not sacrifice. You know what that simply means? Let me just put it in layman's term. God doesn't care about your religious ritualism. God cares about kindness. 
Go to church, make sacrifices, pay tithes, do all these things. But unless you do kindness, you do not delight God. However, we have to ask the question, why is kindness so important to God? Why is it impossible to please him without it? Now, here's something that I think is interesting. When you study the word kindness in the Old Testament, you find out this, that kindness is used to describe both God's name and his mission. In other words, it tells us who God is and what God does. If you want to see about it describing who he is, all you have to do is turn to Exodus 34. God reveals his glory to Moses and then he declares his name. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness. It's embedded in his very name that he is a God of kindness, a God of love. And it's from here on out that the Old Testament continues to say that God is a God of chesed, mercy and kindness. That's how they came to know their God throughout their history. So seen in this light, we don't speak of God's kindness as something as merely what he does, right? God doesn't just merely show kindness. God is kind. It's who he is. He'll never not be kind. Furthermore, kindness, love, mercy, goodness, faithfulness, all these things that are descriptive of that word, also describes God's primary work for his people. Now, contrary to modern opinions, lots of, lots of people read the Old Testament and they think, all we see is a God of wrath. All we see is a God of judgment. All we see is a God of justice. And yet, that's not how the Old Testament people of God saw him. They understood him to be a God who lavished mercy on them over and over and over again. Typically, when the Bible describes God's hesed for his people, it refers to God's covenant-keeping love. In other words, his love that makes him committed to keep his promises. The love that makes him committed to do what he promised Abraham. He is the God who will not tell a lie. He is a God who will not leave his promises unfulfilled. He is a God who will show love in the way that he has promised to. It's a key characteristic of his unique relationship with his people. You read Jeremiah 31.3, for example, and and even the threat of exile because of sin. God tells his people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And therefore, I have continued my faithfulness. Do you hear the tenderhearted, kind God in that? Even in his disciplining of his people. I have loved you with an everlasting love. When God shows kindness in the Bible, we see that he shows it particularly on those who cannot help themselves and are under the oppression of another. Let that refute your Texan nationalism that says God helps those who helps themselves because the opposite is true in Scripture. God never helps those who helps themselves. God helps them who cannot help themselves and are under the oppression of an oppressor. You see it over and over again. We see it in Israel when they were enslaved to Egypt. There's no way in the world they could have helped themselves. They were under the taskmaster's whip. God in in Exodus chapter 3 showed his kindness when he said it is all because of him hearing and seeing and knowing their suffering that moved him. 
He didn't forget about them. He didn't say, I'll wait till they can move toward their own deliverance. No, he said, I will deliver them because I'm a kind-hearted God. They were powerless to save themselves. When God sees suffering and oppression, he moves to set the, the oppressed free from their bondage. That's who our God is. Now, seeing that God's nature and mission was bent on showing kindness to those who are weak and oppressed, And seeing that this is the way that he typically responds with his people, it helps to make sense why God would want his people to do the same. I mean, we're called to be images of God. We're to reflect God. What better way to reflect God's name and mission than to be kind? To show kindness is reflecting the nature and work of God himself, while neglecting kindness is ultimately a rejection of God, according to the Old Testament. Job knew exactly what he was saying when he said, He who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Forsake kindness, you forsake God. The author of Proverbs in Proverbs eleven seventeen says, A man who is kind benefits himself, and a cruel man hurts himself. Why? Because a man who is kind aligns himself with the name and mission of God, whereas a person who is unkind sets themselves in opposition against God. A person who sets themselves as an oppressor stands against the weak instead of standing for the weak. God stands with the weak. He stands with the wounded. He stands with the oppressed. And he expects us to do the same. Now, we're in Exodus. And so, because we're in this section of the law, we're trying to show how the law demands those three things. Justice, kindness, walking humbly with God. And so, today we're going to look specifically how Exodus 20, chapters 20 to 23 demand that his people show kindness to the weak, to the wounded, and to the oppressed. Now, you may find this next section absolutely boring. I'll just give you a little heads up. If you want to know the sweetness of what's to come by the end of this sermon, you have to pay attention to the bitterness of the law. Okay? Endure the sour, and then it will come. It's like the, the what are those sweet and sour candies. First they're sour, and then they're sweet. Okay? That's what this sermon's like. Okay? Just deal with it. Don't give me your sour faces. I had to write it. So, First, God's people must show kindness to slaves. God's people must show kindness to slaves. If you've been here for the last couple weeks, you understand that we're not talking about 16th century race-based slavery here. We're talking about Hebrew people who could not pay off a debt and who sold themselves as an indentured servant to pay off a debt. However, regardless of the reason for their slavery, even if that weren't true, Israelite masters were to mirror God's kind heart. We see it specifically in chapter 21, verse 2, in which God says that a Hebrew slave may serve for a maximum of six years, and then he says, he shall go out free for nothing. Now, it just drops that in Exodus and doesn't really expound on it much much more, but Leviticus 25 goes on to explain why this law is important. If you go on to verse 39 of Leviticus 25, here's what it says. A slave shall be with you as a hired hand and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his father. Why? For they are my servants whom I bought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. 
the basic, simple principle of the law is this. God had set the Israelites free from slavery. Every Israelite had been set free by the redemption of God. And therefore, they were to set their slaves free every seventh year. Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 13 goes even further and says that when you set him free, you are not to set him empty, send him empty handed. You're to fill their arms with your wine, with the, with the wine from your wine presses with possessions. Why? Because he's mirroring the way that when he brought them out of Egypt, they plundered the Egyptians. So just to paint the picture in Israel, every seven years, the slaves come out. They're free. They come out with their arms full. It's a mini exodus over and over and over again. And just to hear the drumbeat of Scripture, God is saying, listen, you will remember what I've done for you. I set you free from your slavery, and therefore you're to replicate that freedom in the lives of others. I gave you an exodus. You are to give those underneath you an exodus. You're to do as I have done to you. It's a very profound thought when you think about it. That their whole time they're thinking, okay, they have to remember seventh year freedom is coming. And in that time, they're to be motivated to set them free at whatever cost to themselves. Because God set them free at whatever cost he needed to pay to set them free. Further still, God's law envisioned uh, in Israelite masters who would treat their slaves like sons. This is all very subtle, but if you look at verses 3 through 6 in chapter 21, verse 4 even forecasts the possibility that a, a slave master might give might buy a wife for his slave. Now remember, if a slave is there because they're an indentured servant and they're paying off a debt, they can't pay the bride price, which means marriage is a distant dream for a lot of them. And so the master in his kindness is to treat the slave like a son and even provide a wife for him. According to the Old Testament law, God foresees a day that slaves can sincerely say, I love my master. I will not go go out for free. So such kindness, when we think about it in terms of Hebrew slavery, could hardly be called slavery at all. It could hardly be called slavery at all. It was meant to bless those who were poor. It was meant to send those who came in empty out full. For those who were in bondage to set them free. Now second, God's people must show kindness to the sojourner, the widow, and the orphans. These three groups of people are representative of people who cannot defend themselves, people who cannot protect themselves or provide for themselves. Sojourners back in the day didn't have embassies in other countries, so they had no representation. They were completely at the mercy of whatever host country they were in. They could be oppressed, their goods could be stolen, they could be beaten, their wives could be taken, their children could be enslaved. And so it was a very dangerous thing to be foreigners back in the day. Not only that, widows were totally dependent on their husbands and sons for for provision. And so if they lost the husband, it was basically a death sentence in a lot of ancient cultures. Because now there was no way for them to provide for themselves. They had no means of provision. Orphans. Orphans were the worst of the lot. Because they could be sold. They could be kidnapped. They could be killed. And without anyone standing on their behalf... They were completely at the mercy of any adult around them. So God gives commands concerning these helpless, 
hurting, weak, and wounded people. God's command to not oppress the sojourner is repeated twice in the same section, which emphasizes the importance of this particular law. Whenever God says something twice, you better hear it the first time. When God says something twice, he means it. Exodus chapter 22, verse 21, he says this, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He comes back again in chapter 23, verse 9. He says, you shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner. In other words, you know what it's like to be a foreigner, for you are foreigners in the land of Egypt. So we see once again, God bases his command. I was with you and I showed kindness to you when you were foreigners. Therefore, show kindness to other foreigners. He bases it on what he has done for them. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 to 34, put more flesh on bone in how they're to apply this. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. That's law in Old Testament. And you shall, listen to this, you shall love him as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What's at the heart of that command? How, how, do, how are they supposed to love sojourners? You're supposed to love him as you love yourself. It is what Jesus said. So whatever you wish that others do to you, so also do to them. For this is the law, right? So I just think in a, in a modern context, and again, I, my job, you pay me to pick on you. In a modern context, can you actually look at the way that you think about things like immigration and foreigners and actually say, we love them as we love ourselves? We want to give the kind of kindness that God has given us. It's a bone that we all have got to pick, right? I mean, it's kind of one of those awkward things because like, well, you know. But that's exactly what the law is requiring. If we cannot say that we love the foreigner as we love ourselves, then we have fallen far short of the law. Because that's what God requires. When we get to the end of this sermon, you're going to see exactly why that's important. Because what we're called to do from the law, Jesus did for us. And it's a huge point. Now, I think as God's people and as the church, we have to be the ones who get this right. Out of anybody, we have to be the ones to get this right. God speaks even more severely when it comes to widows and orphans. He says, if you mistreat them, this is in verse 23, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And then he gives the threat here. And I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That sounds hugely negative. But positively, here's what it's saying. The Lord of all the universe, the Lord who has made all things, guess what captures his attention? Guess what bends his ear more than anything else? The cries of widows and orphans. I mean, just to paint the picture, just imagine the biggest, strongest battle-hardened warrior you can think of. He's got scars from battles, and he's just known as a headhunter. And yet, you see him drawn aside to rescue the whimpering of a poor little kitten. That tenderness, right? 
That love, that mercy, this is what we see our God doing. That the God of all the universe would hear the cries of someone so humble, someone so weak, someone so helpless, and that he bends his ears in that direction. And not only that, he says, if you hurt them, I will avenge them. Make no mistake about it. It's an amazing love of God. He burns with passion for the weak and wounded. Burns with passion. My white wrath will burn if you oppress them. God will do to oppressors as they do to the helpless. You see that? Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do to you. But the warning of that is, God will do to you what you do to others too, if you oppress them. God will do it. This is consistent with the New Testament too, where James says that the care of widows and orphans is religion that is pure and undefiled before God. His heart beats for the wounded and the weak, and so should our heart beat for them. Third, God's people must show kindness to debtors. Exodus chapter 22, verse 25 through 27 lays out the laws for how they're to treat people who owe them money. Specifically, they're not to be money lenders. If you want me to give you the proper translation of that, don't be a loan shark, right? Don't go around offering these loans and then giving these un, these incredible, amazing interest rates on people that they can never pay. In fact, imagine how great this would be. Interest was illegal in Israel. No credit scores. No, no APRs. You just gave out of the kindness of your heart. You trusted the Lord to see that he saw what you gave and you trusted he would repay it back. You didn't have to take pledges. You didn't have to make interest because you were trusting God that he'd give it back. In fact, if you, if back in Old Testament Israel, if you took a cloak as a pledge, guess what you're to do? Before nightfall, go give it back. Why? Because of the kindness of God. Here's what he says. It is the cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? You take his blanket, he's going to be cold. And as a warning, if you take his blanket and keep it because he owes you a little bit of money and he cries to me, I will hear him for I am compassionate. What a great tender voice of God. While at the same time, what a very striking warning. You either be compassionate like God or you're against the compassionate God. Leviticus 25 summarizes, If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner. He shall live with you. I've often thought to test this out on this modern context and just told you me and my uh, kids need to move into your house. But this is exactly the idea. They would rather take in the inconvenience of taking care of a whole other family than to see them go cold and go homeless. They are to, to help them. They're not to take interest. They're not to make profit. In Leviticus chapter 25, verse 36, they're to fear God in the way that they treat these people in need. They're to help them. And then you want to know why the basis of all that kindness is coming from? Here's what he says in chapter 25, verse 38. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan. You know what that means? That the very land that they sat on was a gift from God. The very land that they that they enjoyed from God was an inheritance. They were poor and God gave it to them. No interest rates, nothing that they needed to pay back. It was simply God's. It was his land. 
My friends, the cattle on a thousand hills is the Lord's, and so is your 1,800-square-foot house, and so is your $18,000 car, and so is your 401k. It is not yours. It is God's. You rent it from Him. And He gave it because He was compassionate. And therefore, you are to treat other people with it with compassion. That's the simple fact of it. What do you have that you have not been given by God? And yet we don't give. We don't get in, we don't inconvenience ourselves. Our time, our materials, they all belong to Him. And yet we feel like we have room to be Scrooges. God says it shouldn't be so. Fourth, God's people must show kindness to enemies. Exodus chapter 23 verses 4 through 5 says that if an Israelite's out walking and they see an ox or a donkey and it's gone astray and it's their enemy's ox or donkey, they're to bring it back. They're not to go, well, it's things for him. That's what he gets. Right? In the same way, if he sees the donkey of one who hates him dying underneath a burden, he's to go rescue the donkey and bring it back to his enemy. Let me just paint the picture. You see someone that you hate stranded in the ditch. You don't drive by and honk and wave. You don't just pass on going, well, it stinks for them. You stop, you help, you show love. It's exactly what Jesus requires of his New Testament people. To love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Fifth, God's people must show kindness to the poor. Um, this is a law that we probably don't understand much. It's a different culture in a different time. That's part of the struggles of teaching Old Testament law is that their laws meant for people 4,000 years ago. So we don't, we don't understand all these. But basically the laws here say that you are to let your land follow every seventh year. So you, you just, just to show you, you're, you're sowing and you're reaping and you're working the field. You're taking your tractors out, right? You're cultivating the land and you're planting the seed. But every seventh year you let it grow on its own. Why? Because of verse 11 of chapter 23, that the poor of your people may eat. That's, that's why he wanted them to do that. Was so that the poor would have a chance to eat would be taken care of. Now, most of us Texans are clicking our shotguns at this. That's my property. And God's saying, uh, yeah, you're supposed to let them pick food off of your property. Because they're poor and they don't have anything. And it's my land anyway. And I just think in this, you just think about these poor people going out into the field and they're bending over and they're picking up whatever they can get, whatever God has given them. And the Israelites in their mind, what should they be thinking of? The way they were in the desert and picking up manna piece by piece, day by day, just enough to eat. Why? Because God is kind and he's not a Scrooge when it comes to money and food and when it comes to possessions. God gives freely. He's a kind God. He's not going to let his people starve. And yet we click our shotguns and say, not my property, not my possessions. God in his kindness says you are to share. You are to love. You're to give freely. Because God has given freely to us. Sixth, God's people must show kindness by giving rest to others. And we think of the Sabbath day, and if I were to ask you, why did God give the Sabbath? A lot of people might say, well, so the people could rest after their work. Well, that's true. 
but it also ensured that those underneath them would be able to be rested and refreshed. Exodus chapter 23, verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. So there's our rest. That your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. The word for refresh there actually means that they may breathe freely. They get a chance to catch their breath. So God's people in kindness are to be mediators of rest. They're to be giving people rest, giving people that fresh breath of rest from God. Finally, and some of you are going, whew, okay. Finally, God's people must not use instruments of life to bring about death. This is a super odd one, and it will not make sense on this point. Wait till the next point. It will make total sense. But they're not to use instruments of life to bring about death. In Exodus chapter 25, verse 19, I can't ever quote this without getting someone to giggle. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's a great law. But the, the heart of it is, is, is actually pretty profound, okay? We don't understand it. And there's lots of debates. Some people think it's for a pagan practice. But after reading all the debates, I think the most convincing one is that they're not to be cruel. They're not to use the instrument of life, which is the mother's milk, to bring about death, right? So an instrument of life to boil the goat in its mother's milk. We're going to come back to it and see how Jesus fulfills this law. Now, this is what's fun, is when you're thinking about the law, Jesus said, I have come to fulfill this law, which means he came to fulfill Exodus 25, 19. Do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And it's really quite interesting how he fulfills it. So, we made it our trek through the law. Now, how did Israel do? Did they show the kindness that they were called to? No. They didn't. They fell short of God's standards. They enslaved their brothers and sold them to other nations. They oppressed the foreigner, the widow, and the orphan. They extorted interest from those in debt and poverty. They brought unrest to those who needed rest instead of bringing them rest for the weary from God. They were cruel and swift to shed blood. They were crafty like snakes. When you get to Romans 3, which is um, descriptive of all people, but is using verses describing Israel, it actually says that their mouths are filled with the venom of asp. In other words, they become serpent-like. They become like Satan in the way they deal with people. They hate people. They kill people. They seek to kill, steal, devour, and destroy. That's people in their natural sinful state. Now, it's in the midst of our disobedience, Israel's disobedience, that God sent one who would obey the law perfectly. Now, as Jesus began his ministry, he stood in the synagogue and he read from the prophet Isaiah. Here's what he said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then throughout Jesus' ministry, we see him doing just that. He is moved to compassion. Just study all the times. He was moved to pity, moved to love, moved to compassion. He sees the crowds of thousands of people, and his heart beats and bleeds for them because they are like sheep without a shepherd. You hear blind men calling him out in the street, Son of David, have mercy on us. Show kindness to us. And what does Jesus do? Now, you don't understand. My Apple Watch is telling me I've got to get going. I'm late for work. 
Jesus is constantly drawn aside to show kindness. He stops at inconvenient, inconvenient times to show love. Now we see that in all these real ways and the ways that he heals people, touching a leper. Nobody touched a leper. Can you imagine? Years of no human contact. And this leper, for the first time in years, feels the warm hand of the Son of God touching him to heal him. Kind Savior. But it goes even further. All these points that we just said that the law calls God's people to show kindness towards these group of people. Why does the law do that? Why does the law say, for example, show kindness to slaves? Why does it set us up? It's like it's teeing us up for something. Because every single one of these points we've just been through, Jesus does for us in the gospel. Here, we're going to walk through them very briefly. Jesus showed kindness to us who were slaves. In the Old Testament law, you were to set free slaves on the seventh year. Jesus says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And then guess what he said? If the son sets you free, you are free indeed. Not just on the seventh year, but when you trust in Jesus, you're eternally free forever. Definitively free. Decisively free. The bonds of your slavery are gone. Jesus shows kindness by setting the captive free. We laugh at these Old Testament laws that are like, oh, they had slavery back then. My friends, you were the slaves Exodus was talking about. And if Jesus had not obeyed the law, you would be slaves still. Your freedom as Christians, your freedom from slavery, from addiction, from hatred, from unkindness, comes only because the Son of God gave you freedom because of His kindness. Second, Jesus shows kindness to us who were strangers to the promises of God. My friend, there's been a lot of news about immigration and foreigners in the, you know, Fox News, CNN, you see a lot of it. I'm just going to be real blunt with you. When it comes to the kingdom of God, you all were immigrants. You all were foreigners. Talk about building walls. Because of your sin, the wall was unbreachable. There were no illegal immigrants in God's kingdom. It was just simply separation from God. But what did Jesus do? Ephesians 2. He didn't build a wall. He tore the wall down. Ephesians 2 says this. They poured out kindness on those of us who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers. The the Greek word for that is foreigners to the covenants of promise. My friends, you're the immigrants that he's shown mercy to. You're the people from other nations that are homeless and drifting. He took those of us that were far off. Now just think of how far off some of us were. Just think about your testimony. The drugs, the sex, the ex-wives, the ex-husbands, the broken marriages, the beatings. The, all these things that we have come from. We were far off. And the gospel says he has brought us near. Why? Because of this. So that you would no longer be strangers and aliens, but instead Fellow citizens with the saints of God. And not just fellow citizens. Family members in the household of God. My friends, I'm so glad Jesus doesn't treat us the way we treat foreign people. Because if he did, we would not be allowed into the kingdom of God. There's no reason for us to be allowed into the kingdom of God. We were spiritual refugees who had been displaced by sin. And guess what Jesus did? 
He gave us a refuge in himself. Jesus showed kindness to us who were spiritual orphans. In sin, all people are separated from the Father. All people are separated from the Father. In fact, according to Ephesians 2, we belong to another father who's very oppressive, abusive father, right? We follow our father, the devil. You see that in different places in the New Testament, but particularly in Ephesians 2, we belong to a different father. Jesus, however, comes and he puts an end to our fatherless state. Here's what he says to all who believe in him. He gave the right to become the children of God. In Christ, we go from being orphans to sons and daughters of God through faith. He shows kindness. He sees us. He moves towards us. He hears our cries and our spiritual longing and everybody does it. Even in their sinful state, we are not satisfied. We're hungry. We're thirsty. We're cold. We're homeless. And what does Jesus do? He brings the orphan in. Why? So that they will be fatherless no more. When God said in Exodus 20, I will hear their cry. He kept that promise when he sent Jesus and saved you. You were the orphan he bent his ear toward. You were the orphan that cried out in the night. And that moved God to come and save. My friends, I hope we don't take advantage of that or or neglect that. When we see an orphan on the streets or, or we hear about these kids that have horrible lives, I hope we don't just shrug that off because guess what? Spiritually speaking, that was you. All these horror stories that we hear about children. That was us. And yet Jesus showed kindness to the orphans and made us sons and daughters of God. Next, Jesus showed kindness to those of us who were heartbroken, to the brokenhearted. Jesus read from Isaiah 61. And and in your New Testament, it doesn't actually quote this phrase. But the fact that he read from Isaiah 61 means that it's included in his quote. Jesus came to bind up, to heal the brokenhearted. Now, just to put that in the context of the law, the law says to love widows, it's hard to imagine someone more heartbroken than a widow. But yet even widows can find comfort and healing in Jesus Christ. And it's amazing to think that he brought wholeness and health and healing. How? By being broken himself. He let his body be broken so that the brokenhearted could have healing. Jesus shows kindness to those who are brokenhearted. Tenderness and love. He becomes a husband to those who have no husbands. He becomes a big brother to those who are alone. He places the lonely in families. That's the church. And he builds families that way. It's the kindness of God. Next, Jesus shows kindness to us who were debtors. You may never have taken out a loan in your life, but you have been in debt before. You have, you may never have had a credit card. You may do Dave Ramsey and pay everything in cash. But the fact of the matter is, is you have been in debt before. Because of your sin, you are a debt. You have a debt before God that you can never pay on your own. But what's amazing about this debt is God, Christ doesn't call default on the debt he doesn't make you pay it right he doesn't he doesn't uh demand that you're going to be foreclosed in your life if you don't 
pay it. Instead, here's what he does. In him, God has forgiven all of our trespasses. How? By canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. You know what the law demanded? Foreclosure, forfeiture of your life, of your eternal state, all your assets, everything liquidated into hell. And yet, what did he do? This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Can you imagine, for those of us that are in debt, can you imagine if someone just took your bank statement that talks about all the loans and debts that you have and seeing someone just rip it up right there in front of you? That'd be amazing. But it has nothing on the fact that that's what Jesus did for our eternal debt. He took that debt and he nailed it to the cross. Paid. Paid. Jesus showed kindness to those who were in debt. And my friends, he doesn't keep record of your debt. It's paid. It's over. Zero balance. You owe nothing. But now we're free to serve him with kindness from our life. We're now set free to serve him with gratitude. We're not those indebted to him. We're those who are now in love and, and, and we serve out of love, not just out of the fact that we owe him something. We do it because we love him. Next, Jesus showed kindness to those of us who were enemies. Colossians chapter one, verses 21 through 22 says, and you who were once alienated and hostile at enmity with God in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. My friends, Jesus did not save you when you cleaned yourself up. Jesus did not save you when you became more friendly to the idea of God. Jesus saved you while you were still sinners. Christ died for us. He accomplished it. The Israelites were to show love to their enemy by showing love in practical ways, returning donkeys and whatever. But Jesus showed it in a different way. He didn't just carry the donkey back to the enemy. He carried his enemy's cross and proved his love for us. We were the enemies of God. Now we've been made friends with God. Because Christ obeyed the law. Next. Jesus shows kindness to those of us who are spiritually poor and hungry. It actually says that he gave up his riches so that we could be made rich. In in scripture, it also talks about him being the bread of life. And whoever comes to him will never hunger again. And whoever believes in him will never thirst again. My friends, Jesus doesn't just give us a field to pick our own crops from. Jesus gives us his own flesh and blood. It was a small price to pay in Exodus every seventh year to let all the poor come onto your field. It was a huge price to give it his own flesh and say, this is the blood and the body that actually gives you life. You're not just going to eat from what's mine. You're going to eat me. It'll be my body that will be your bread, my blood that'll be your wine, and you will live and never hunger and thirst again. And so we reap from his ruin. We reap from his death. He bleeds and we live. He's broken and we're healed. He's rich and became poor, and we're poor and we've been made rich. 
He temporarily disinherited himself to die on a cross so that we could have the inheritance of God. My friends, it's an amazing thing how Jesus has moved toward us poor and cannot influence anything, cannot buy anything on our own, and Jesus covers it. Jesus also showed kindness to the weary. We talked about how the law requires his people to be mediators of rest. Exodus 23, 12, give them a Sabbath. Why? So that they can be refreshed. Do you hear Jesus say it when he says this? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's Exodus 23, 12. All who labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. He fulfills it. We don't just catch our breath when he gives us rest. We get to breathe our first breath. We were dead, not just tired, dead. And because Jesus is who he is and he does what he does, we go from death to life, from no breath to free breath all over again. It is Exodus 23, 20, uh, Exodus 23, 12 on steroids. It's not just merely let me provide a moment for you to catch your breath. It's let me provide your first breath. Jesus is a kind Savior. And he gives rest. Now finally, we're going to come back to the goat law. That's what I call it. Some may not agree with this connection. I'm just going to make that absolutely clear. If I, if my seminary professors were in here, they'd probably shake their heads and, you know, do whatever. But they're not here, so. I think Jesus fulfilled all the law. And so I think that includes Exodus 23, 19, which says, You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, the law demanded that the Israelites not use an instrument of life. That's the milk, right? Milk is used to give a baby goat life. Without the milk, the baby goat would die. So they're not to use an instrument of life to bring about death. Jesus flipped it on its head. He uses an instrument of death, a cross, to bring about life. You see how he flips it on his head? He uses an instrument of death, the cross, which is meant to be an instrument of torture, meant to be an instrument of excruciating pain. That's where we get that word, out of crucifixion, excruciating pain. And what comes from his death? Life. He doesn't use life to bring death. He uses death to bring life. His death in particular. And when Jesus does it, all people are made free. All people have eternal life when they believe in him and trust in him. And his death brings life because he is a kind savior. He bore the punishment for our sins. He bore the cross that the law demanded be ours. It was because of our law-breaking and our unkindness that he died, the godly for the ungodly, the just for the unjust, the kind for the unkind. He was buried in a tomb that should have been ours, and he rose again so that we could have a resurrection like his. Again, just lavishing his kindness on us. The kindness demanded by the law inevitably leads us to the kindness found in the feet of Christ. Now, what does all this mean for the New Testament church? This is my last point. In Exodus, the Israelites were to show kindness just as God had showed kindness to them through the redemption from Egypt. Right? He kept saying that. Uh, they were to show kindness to slaves. Why? Because they were to remember that they too were once slaves. To the poor and indebted. Why? Because they were to remember that they too were once poor and indebted. 
to the sojourner. Why? Because they were to remember that they too were once sojourners and so on and so on. Whenever God gives a command to the Israelites in the Old Testament and then connects it with, for you too were whatever in Egypt, he's basically saying this, love others as I have loved you. Isn't that what Jesus says explicitly in John chapter 13, verse 34? Not just love others as you want others to love you, but love others as I have loved you. So let's just put flesh and bone. There are multiple applications on this, but here's what this means. Our daily actions should be like us giving many exoduses and many Golgothas to people. Can you imagine if everyone saw the acts of kindness that they did as Christians like that? We're replicating Golgotha in little ways, day after day after day. The way I love my wife, replicating Golgotha day after day after day. The way I love the foreigner and bring them in to love them and share the gospel with them, day after day after day, replicating God's kindness. The way I move to the fringe people in the church, because I don't want them to feel outside. I don't want them to feel inhospitality, but I want them to feel the warmth and welcome. Again, mirroring the way that God has brought us near. Acts of kindness are to be like many exoduses, many Golgothas. The way we treat people of different ethnicities. The way we extend a hand to the poor. The way we share the gospel to our neighbor. The way we go to the Dominican Republic. The way that we open our arms to young ladies who are pregnant. Outside of marriage, not judging them, but to show them love and kindness and mercy. The way that we talk about homosexuals, again, not casting judgment, speaking the truth, homosexuality as a sin, but in love. We love you. We want to bring you out of that, just like God brought us out of our sins. True kindness begins by remembering the kindness given to you in Jesus. To love the helpless, you have to remember that you were once helpless. To love the weak and wounded, you must remember the kindness of God. When scripture says, when we ourselves were still weak, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for a kind church. I pray for kindness to be replicated in my own life because of the kindness you have given me. God, I was the foreigner. I was the slave. I was the orphan. I was the brokenhearted widow. I was the poor that was in debt to you because of my sins. I was the one who deserved death. And yet, God, you have shown kindness in Jesus. And not only that, you have given me a place in the heavenly place that seated me with Christ so that you could lavish your kindness on me for all eternity. I pray, Father, that as we continue in worship today, that you will move us toward kindness and help us to be a kind-hearted people, just like you're a kind-hearted God. We pray this in your Son's name.